It is true. All right. Prompt as we are. I'll start introductions as people come in. My name is Sandy Soho. I'm the coordinator for global health nursing through continuing ed. And I'm helping to coordinate these where in the world are DH nurses uh, grand rounds. And I want to thank you for joining us for Flying Kites in Kenya. Um, and I want to welcome anybody that's viewing this online. Uh, we have a couple of housekeeping things before I introduce our speaker. We have a new way of tracking attendance. After the program, you'll receive an email from the Center for Continuing Education with a link to an online evaluation. Upon completion of the evaluation, your one contact hour will be automatically posted to your online transcript. Um, this, this links completing the evaluation to receiving credit. Even if you do not need the contact hour, the Center for Continuing Education values your feedback regarding this program and invites you to take just a few minutes to complete the evaluation. Your feedback is very important to us. Um, be sure to sign in over here and you need to stay for at least 80% of the program to receive credit. And for those viewing online, please email Judy Langhans within an hour of completing the presentation stating that you participated in the activity online. Include your name, degree, and zip code. And Judy's email address is judith.m.langhans at hitchcock.org. Um, for those viewing online, if you have any questions during the presentation, you can email them to Judy Langhans and she'll give them to the presenter at the end of the presentation. Uh, please silence your cell phones and pagers. And then before I introduce Kristen, I will let you know that neither Kristen nor any members of the planning committee have identified a financial interest or relationship with a commercial entity or any conflict of interest regarding this activity, and no one refused to disclose. So it's my pleasure to introduce Kristen. She's a registered nurse at DHMC, working inpatient between medical specialties and the intensive care unit. She received her BSN from Salve Regina University. Kristen has been involved with the Flying Kites organization since 2008, assisting in the coordination of their volunteer program being a child advocate and sponsor for two children for four years, raising funds, organizing events, and spreading awareness of flying kites. Over the past three years, she has personally raised over $7,000 for the program. She's traveled internationally many times and has been to Kenya twice for extended periods. So join me in welcoming Kristen. Thank you. So um, thank you for coming today. Um, let's see. Just, um, it's my hope that I'll be able to um, enhance your knowledge and understanding of the orphan crisis in Kenya and the lack of um, adequate health care in rural regions of the area. Um, I'm going to introduce to you um, the nonprofit organization Flying Kites and talk about what they've been providing the village of Shabini, Kenya. And lastly, I'll discuss my experiences um, as a volunteer and how you could become one as well. So my objectives discuss health disparities in rural Kenya and describe opportunities to become actively involved in overseas volunteer um, program involved in improving health for the local population. So um, why is global health important to us? 
I really loved this quote from um, Sheila Davis's presentation last fall on global health nursing. Um, the worst sin towards our fellow creatures is not to hate them, but to be indifferent to them. That's the essence of inhumanity. Um, of course, there are many ways you can volunteer here in the US, but I believe ethically we share a responsibility um, of helping those in developing countries where resources are minimal. And I think that global health um, has a lot to do with passion as well, being passionate about what you do, um, your job, people, humanity, cultures, um, especially passion for travel and um, enhancing your understanding of life outside of your comfort zone. So I think it's important to mention that in volunteering abroad, um, your assistance should be to empower those in need. Um, so really you want uh, them to become self-sufficient. So I just wanted to point out where Kenya is. So it's central, uh, eastern, right on the Indian Ocean. They have beautiful beaches. And uh, Flying Kites is um, in Jabini, Kenya. It's in the Aberdares mountain region, about two hours outside of the, um, the capital city, Nairobi. And this location was chosen by the founders um, after they had been volunteering in the slums of Nairobi for about five years every summer during college. Um, and they decided they wanted to take kids outside of the city and provide um, an area that had a lot of space and clean air, access to clean water, and kind of an all-around healthy environment. So just a little bit about the orphan crisis right now. So in 2010, there was an estimated 2.5 million orphans in Kenya, 1 million due to HIV and AIDS. And there's an increasing number of orphans and displaced children due to political violence. Um, in 2012, there was an estimated 1.6 million people living with AIDS, and many orphans end up living on the streets. Um, so Flying Kites started because they wanted to challenge this idea of orphan versus child. Um, orphanages in Kenya, um, they're more like businesses. They see it as more children equals more money for them. Um, people from other countries, from um, not developing countries, they um, blindly donate to these programs and really the money doesn't go to the, the kids. Um, or they see it as a few cents for a bowl of rice a day is better than nothing. But really, really, it's not the living situation is worse than what we would allow for our own animals. It's, you know, the, this particular um, orphanage that I visited my first trip where uh, the founders went every summer, 400 kids living in this one building. It was like a warehouse. They were basically sleeping on, on top of each other. They just would have, they'd have one room, they'd roll out their mats, They'd sleep there, wake up the next day, roll them up, pull desks out. So they lived there, they ate there, um, basically bathed there and attempted to learn there. Um, so uh, the kids had scabies and, and lice, so really having malnourished, hungry, tired, because they're uncomfortable, they're itchy, they're hungry, they're not really sleeping. Um, they're not really able to learn and better their situation. Also, in terms of education, um, school isn't free in Kenya. You have to pay school fees and you have to pay for uniforms and books. So any education they had was um, self-taught. 
or by volunteers that they're usually college students or even sometimes high school students that really don't have a teaching background. They're just, they want to go you know, volunteer in Africa, so they, they go there and they end up in those situations. And it's really, um, it's not long term, and it just kind of um, increases the cycle of poverty. Um, so usually with the orphans, um, both parents are dead. Uh, sometimes the kids have relatives to go to, but often the relatives are in poverty also, so they're not able to support them to go to school, and the kids are usually just put to work. If they don't have relatives to go to, they end up on the streets, and that's another major problem in Kenya right now are the street kids. There's a lot of um, bullying, stealing, starvation, drugs. They, um, sniffing is really popular because it helps with the hunger pains. Um, there's really been a lack of response from the government. Um, they tried to rehabilitate them, but then they ended up treating them like criminals rather than, um, you know, children that need to be educated and nourished um, and cared about. So actually one of our boys, Joseph, he told us a story. That's basically how he started as a street kid. And then he heard about this orphanage. Um, and he went there, and this was the same orphanage that the founders were at, um, and realized that his situation really wasn't going to improve. Um, he found out about flying kites and um, got their contact information and emailed them. And next time uh, Lila and Justine, the founders, <coughs> were in Kenya, they met for coffee, and um, they were really moved by his story, so they basically just took him in, and he's now sponsored. He's one of the kids, and he's at um, one of the schools right now. Um, so flying kites, uh, they're a children's home for the orphaned and abused kids. I say orphaned and abused because um, some children aren't orphaned, but their parents aren't fit to care for them, um, usually from uh, mental illness. Um, so their mission, Flying Kites, seeks to raise the standards of care available to um, the world's poorest children. They're a nonprofit that strives to give the kids the tools they'll need, um, education, imagination, and resolution to succeed and contribute to a complex, changing world. Um, they prepare them to impact their societies through um, an emphasis on compassion, advocacy, and leadership. So their idea, when they were seniors in college, they were seniors, I was freshmen, this is how I met the founders. They were seniors and they had this utopian idea, why don't we take these orphans and treat them as you would raise your own child rather than treat them as an orphan and kind of a social outcast. So they um, built this home up in, the, up in the mountains, they had made their connections previously. And, um, you know, because they really believe children need families um, people to invest in the quality of their education and the possibility of their dreams. Children need um, nourishment and inspiration and adventure and security, and they need to be shown that the world cares about who they are and who they'll become. So that's kind of what they created for these kids in Jabini. Um, so how is Flying Kites providing exemplary care and compassion for children um, devastated by poverty? They built a home. Uh, it's a 10 to 1 ratio of matron to child. It's um, family style. The kids are in separated rooms, and um, uh, they each have their own beds. There's 43 children right now. Um, they have three nutritious meals a day, electricity at night. There's running water, tons of 
clothes that's been donated. Um, uh, medical care, they have tutoring every night. Uh, books, pencils, paper, uh, clean air, open space. It's a loving environment. The children are really encouraged to dream big. Every night they have family meeting. And at family meeting, the kids talk about what they learned that day, what they were grateful for, what made them upset that day. Um, and uh, they also have a farm on the premise with sheep, cows, rabbits, chickens. The matrons are really seen as mothers, and the matrons feel like they are the kids' mothers. Um, and the kids see each other as brothers and sisters. Then they also have an outreach program. Um, their goal with this was really to uh, keep children that they couldn't take in um, with their families, with their relatives. Uh, what they basically do through income generating activities uh, like fundraising, um, loans, and grants, they um, help support that family financially so that they can send the kids to school rather than just use them to work on the farm. They also are partnered with other nonprofit organizations that specialize in various areas of development, like agriculture, education, health, and infrastructure to provide a more powerful powerful systematic uh, community impact. Um, so their partners include the Africa Yoga Project. They were there every other weekend, and we all did yoga, and it was a lot of fun. Um, the school fund tailored for education. I know they donated like 50 uniforms last year to Penny Blue and Divology is another example. And um, you can look them all up online. They're really interesting. And then um, grants. So those are for sudden and unexpected circumstances that can often be the reason that a family finds themselves um, in a cycle of poverty. So that can be the death of a family member, uh, a cow, fire, a serious illness, um, drought or robbery. And basically they uh, have a council that they meet with in these emergency situations and try to help them out. So while I was there, um, there's this man that lives, one of our neighbors, he uh, is a grandfather raising all eight of his grandkids, and um, they were away one night. And his entire house, with everything that he has ever owned, birth certificates, money, clothes, everything, was completely burned to the ground. And um, Flying Kites hosted uh, this council meeting, and the community really came together, and they everyone um, brought nails and wood, um, we communicated with people back home and all the volunteers that were there at the time, we all chipped in money as well. And we, by the end of my stay, I was there for two months, um, they had rebuilt his, his home. So that was really pretty amazing. And um, another example, one of the matrons, her daughter, she uh, was kicked out of school because they fell behind on their school fees. She had a brain tumor that they operated on and the school fees were up to 300000 shillings, which is about 3,000 US dollars. And overnight, uh, Lila, the founder, she communicated with her emergency contacts back home. And the next morning, we woke up, and all the money was was raised. And we wrote a check, and um, she went back to school that next day. And she, we really invested in her, because she scores the highest. She has one of the highest scores in the country for her age. She's 17, and she has a goal to be a doctor. So we were able to get her back to school really quickly. Um, they also have scholarships available. Flying Kites built a school for the kids at the home, and they also um, 
through testing found the poorest but most intelligent of the poor um, and basically gave them a scholarship to go to the school. Um, they also have helped some of the teachers um, go to college through scholarships. So those are all the things that are really kind of working. They also, uh, to raise money, um, you can be a sponsor, you can sponsor a child. You can uh, go on an adventure challenge. They've done things like um, the Tough Mudders. They go, uh, they climb Kilimanjaro, Machu Picchu. So you can sign on for these trips and um, have a really great adventure and also raise a lot of money for the, the kids. Um, and they also, you can be a volunteer, you can donate. Uh, the things that aren't working so well is they would love to take in more kids, but financially they can't because they really want to keep that same level of care for the kids. Um, so that's why they, they have the space, but not the money. And then they would like to be more self-reliant. So building up the farm more so that all of their food comes from the backyard. And um, they really are looking for a business aspect to help improve the economy of Javini as well as um, you know, some income for Flying Kites Home. It's really the uh, founders say that they want to be put out of a job, basically, so that they're completely self-sufficient. So my project um, was sexual health and life skills. Um, as you know, I work in the ICU, so this has nothing to do with what I do here, but uh, Lila, she's a good friend of mine, and called me up one day and freaking out, saying, you're a nurse, you can talk about anything, right? Because the kids are having sex and nobody knows how to deal with it. There's no sex ed there at all. And the matrons were all panicking and the kids were saying, well, we were praying to not get pregnant. And so <laughs> they were really in a tough spot. It was not good. So I'm like, yeah, sure, I, I can do that. No problem, I can talk about anything. I'm a nurse, right, um, we can do anything. So I basically called Planned Parenthood for some guidance, um, and they directed me to some resources online, and um, I found uh, some cur curriculums that some were free, some I had to pay for. So um, I basically did a lot of research and created a curriculum for the kids. Um, so then once I, I got there, I was thinking, okay, I'm going to jump right on this and try to get through this whole program as quickly as possible. But then I remembered I was on Kenya time, and it's like, well, you make an appointment for 8, and it really they mean 12. So you kind of have to be aware of that um, when you go. Um, so the country director was expecting me, knew what my project was. Um, so he thought it was a great idea, and he had me meet with the teachers that first week that I was there. Um, so I ha met with them and I told them what I wanted to do and they said this needs to be in the school system. Um, I think all the kids really need to learn about this because it's really important, obviously. Um, so that weekend, that first weekend that I was there, I kind of did a little pilot uh, and I talked to the kids at the house and we did values lessons and um, they really blew me away because of their understanding of, of values, they not able. Not only were they able to say what's valuable in life, um, like honesty and integrity, and and loving each other, and um, being um, openly communicative and uh, caring, but they also were able to give examples of that. And I was just really impressed by the kids and their excitement for this program. So uh, that Monday, I went to a PTA meeting, and they set 
me up with a um, translator. And I basically talked to all the parents at the school and I told them what I wanted to do and I asked for their permission and they all were um, really excited. I was surprised about that. Um, so they, they said that basically it's the, the father's job to talk to the sons and the mother's job to talk to the daughters, but the conversations are so uncomfortable that they usually don't happen. It's um, They're pretty traditional um, Christian views and um, they just don't don't really talk about it. And if they do, it's not very accurate. Um, as I learned in one of my myth classes, we talked about facts and myths, and there were a lot of myths that um, they thought was real. So <laughs> clarified those. Um, so uh, then I started teaching the next day, and the first lesson was on, um, um, I, I did self-esteem, um, families, gender roles, friendships, and uh, decision-making. I also introduced the question box. Um, so at the beginning of each course, each lesson, uh, the kids wrote down a question and they would uh, put it in the box so there were no names. And you could tell the whole class they were just waiting to get to the question box. And um, that was really funny. Um, they, they, they were very funny and also some of them were, were really serious. I'll talk a little bit more about those after. Um, and Let's see, at school, we my first discussion was sexual exploitation. And um, that's kind of a big deal for them because sex abuse is really common there. Um, and before I had done this lesson, I also heard that at some of the schools, the teachers were actually trading sex for grades. Um, so this was a really powerful class. And by the end of the class, I had all the kids shouting, I am special, I deserve good touch, and my body belongs to me. And they really loved it. Everyone um, had a lot of a lot of fun. Um, let's see. I also did. Um, we talked about life cycles from birth to death. Um, so some of the questions they asked, you know, simple things. What is gender? What does privacy mean? Where do babies come from? Why do people have sex? Does sex feel sweet? They love that word sweet. They don't feel good. Um, is sex painful? How do you know if you have HIV and AIDS? What do you do if you have HIV or AIDS? And is sex abuse harmful? How do you react if you've been sexually abused? So that, I think, was one of my biggest challenges, was being at the front of the room and getting these questions and standing in front of them and thinking, OK, how can I, how can I respond to this in a good way that will help them? Um, when they're on their own. So we also did reproductive systems, and I, I got to draw these. That was a lot of fun. Um, puberty changes, pregnancy and birth, uh, healthy relationships and communication. Um, the kids totally freaked out when they saw this poster. Um, let's see, they had a lot of great questions about body changes pregnancy and birth, and how twins happen, and how or why a woman can die during childbirth. And after discussing healthy relationships, their questions uh, from the box were, um, why do people rape, especially babies? Why are healthy relationships good? Why do you, what do you do if you're in an unhealthy marriage? What do you do if someone is trying to force sex on you? What do you do if you feel happy, if you're sad? And so, these really led to some good discussions on good communication, love and respect for yourself and others. Um, and I 
had to define pedophiles for them. Um, I emphasize the rights one has over their own body, uh, fighting someone who's trying to force sex, and if you're unsuccessful, the steps that they should take after um, a rape has occurred. This is my classroom. I looked a little out of place with my Mac there, but <laughs> the kids love it. They, after class, they always wanted to like look at pictures and go online. Um, so I had split them into two separate classes. This was the age um, uh, seven to nine, and this was 10 to 13. They look a little more mature than the goofballs <laughs> in the background. Those are the kids from the, the house that are standing up being funny. Um, so next we reviewed stress, anger, conflict, uh, gender and gender stereotypes, sexuality and behavior, um, being assertive. Um, so they were really good about this. The decision-making class was probably my most challenging class. I had introduced the lesson by explaining how my friends and I that previous weekend had used um, an active decision-making process for our vacation weekend. We considered our, um, our options and thought of the positive and negative consequences of each option. And after reviewing the basics of passive and active decisions, I had each student write a challenge they were facing. So that previous weekend happened to be perfect because we planned on going um, to the beach that weekend in Mombasa, which was a flight away. And the whole day was just, we were supposed to fly out Friday, come back Sunday. The whole day was such a mess. We were late. We went to the wrong airport, missed our flight, yep. went to the correct airport. And once we got there to get on another flight, we all, um, or one, one of them checked his phone and he had an email from the embassies restricting all um, travel to Mombasa where we were going because they were rioting in the streets. So then we were on Twitter all afternoon and trying to decide should we go or not. So I, um, and you know, checking, getting the immediate updates of what was going on. And it sounded pretty bad and we checked in the morning and it was still bad. So we decided to just stay in the city and in a nice hotel and have hot showers and use the gym. <laughs> um, so I told the kids about that and they thought it was, it was pretty funny. Um, so the, the statements that the kids had um, were, um, one of them said, or actually a few said they knew someone who was being pressured into having sex. Um, one was about a friend who was HIV positive and suicidal. Another student wrote that she's been physically and sexually abused and lacks basic needs at her grandmother's and always goes to sleep hungry. Another student wrote that he wanted to help his family become rich so he can pay his younger sibling's school fees and buy his parents a car. And another student had written a story about a girl who was punished so badly, her leg was broken, she was lame. So that was really hard to read those questions and kind of keep my composure at the front of the room. Um, so I, I took the two that were the most current situation. I had already known about the one who had been abused at her um, grandparents' house. She's one of the kids at Flying Heights, so she's no longer there. Um, so I, I dealt with um, the most important current scenario. So I picked the one, pre pre one pressure into having sex and being suicidal relating to um, the positive HIV status to consider as a class. Um, so we discussed the options and consequences of each situation, um, and the kids seemed to be really happy about that discussion. And then um, the last 
classes were on goal setting, abstinence, resisting peer pressure, drug use, HIV and AIDS, voluntary counseling and testing, and um, care and support for people with HIV, other sexually transmitted infections, and I did do a class on condoms and contraceptives. Um, so that was really funny. I brought them in and I showed them all how to use condoms and then the, I sent all the unopened ones with, home with the teachers. They thought that was great. <laughs> and uh, and um, I also the resisting peer pressure. I had them all um, act, break, split off in groups and act those out, and they had a lot of fun with that. Um, so then we did class, uh, Jeopardy days as review days, and then they did exams, and they really did um, a really good job. So um, that was this is one of my favorite experience. I mean, it was the biggest thing I was doing there, but it was. Um, absolutely amazing. It was hilarious, but it was draining at the same time. It was so challenging, but I really, I really loved it. So um, my classes were about four days a week, 60 to 90 minutes of class. So you kind of have to figure out, okay, what else am I doing while I'm here? Um, so I had befriended a Peace Corps worker while I was there, and um, she was a community health or a public health worker. So she introduced me to the community health workers. Um, we, uh, she had done a presentation on breast cancer and asked um, if I continue that, So, or she did cervical cancer as well. So I uh, made some PowerPoints. I um, taught about prostate cancer, and then I did a little um, research on what their biggest issues were besides um, diseases, which is their um, number one. Number two is um, heart disease. So I did heart disease and another presentation on stroke. Um, and they were great students also, and they actually clap and sing to like say thank you. So that was a lot of fun. <laughs> um, the community health workers, I found them to be really important because they're the ones that um, they go into the homes of everyone in town, and they're really the only ones doing um, patient education because other than that, it really doesn't exist um, because it doesn't happen when they go into a um, health center. And then um, the Peace Corps worker and I, we did a, a mobile clinic. So uh, one Sunday we went to um, a soccer field and we put up signs everywhere and we made like little rooms um, with tapestries um, in the fields. And um, we ended up testing like 70 people in the community, 70 people showed up. We pre and post counseled them and we tested all of them. And surprisingly, only one of them came back positive. So that was really good. But I was also really surprised that that many people had shown up because there's um, a lot of stigma around um, HIV and AIDS. Um, so uh, medicine in rural areas, rural Kenya, it's really based off of tradition. There are a lot of challenges related to it. Um, basically, medicine started as medicine men. So this picture, that's a prescription. Um, one, one day, one of the kids was sick at school. She was vomiting, so we went and picked her up. And we brought her to um, one clinic, and we walked in. It was completely empty. So it was just standing there with Lucy, and um, the driver came back in, and he said, well, I found the doctor. But he's very drunk, 
So maybe we should go somewhere else. <laughs> yeah, maybe maybe we should go check out another one. So we, we drove um, about a half an hour away to get to another clinic. And um, this one, they were just speaking uh, their tribal language. So I didn't know what was going on. And um, basically, she just asked, asked a couple of questions, didn't do any sort of exam, take blood or any anything like that. And um, unmarked bottles, just poured a few pills in each of these brown packages and filled that with some pink stuff and just wrote one times three. Uh, what does this mean? <laughs> what is this medication? Um, so, and that they're like, oh, it's take one three times a day. I'm like, okay, great. Um, didn't tell, I, so I said, well, well, what's wrong with her? And she said, oh, she has stomach bugs. There's no, like, but they didn't explain to them what was wrong. Um, and, and they didn't ask questions either. And that's just how it is. Nobody asks questions and nobody educates anybody else. And when I was talking to some people about, you know, what, what are people typically sick of around, around here? And they said, oh, you know, people just die of old age or seizures. Every time it's a seizure. <laughs> so I don't know where they had that idea, but everything's a seizure or you're old and that's it. Um, so then there was another night. I think it was like one of my very first nights that I was there. Um, the country director came to grab me in the middle of the night and said one of the matrons passed out. And I'm like, oh, God. And I uh, got up. I ran over to her. And she's sweating. And she's like looking around like this. And I'm thinking, you know, maybe she had a heart attack. She passed out, lost consciousness. I had no idea what was going on. Um, so I'm like, we need to call an ambulance. And he's like, OK. So he calls and a motor bike shows up. <laughs> she can't even stand. I can't take her on a bike. Um, so then I said, we need a car to get there. So then they had to call somebody in the middle of the night to drive the uh, Flying Kites Land Rover, which only one person can drive it because it has like 50 gears. So um, then we had to wait for him to come. Then we took her and we went to a lab and they took blood and uh, she had typhoid. So um, then we brought her home after that, after we got a prescription. And then another matron, um, she's HIV positive and she's coughing all the time. So we brought her to for a TB test. And um, the phlebot or I don't even know if it, the lab technician um, just gave her a slip of paper that just had a, a um, I can't even remember what it said. It, it was like illegible writing, an acronym. And I said, so what were your results? And she said, I don't know. And she just handed me this paper. And I'm like, I don't know what this means. So I went in there and he was pissed that I even asked what it said. And he said, obviously it means, you know, it's negative. I was like, okay, that's, that's great. Um, so they, they just don't talk about it. There's um, no education. And um, when that matron who had typhoid, I was asking um, that physician, he said, that's one of the biggest problems. Um, is typhoid and it's really easy to spread. So other issues are medical transport, um, the education prescriptions, um, and then, you know, so I, I think what we can do for them is educate, 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 and um, empower the people that are in those positions, so nurses, physicians, and community health workers. Um, because in an area where there are no there's no running water at the local clinic. There's no water. There's no soap. There's no Purell. Gloves were um, uh, very rare. 
they, I was giving vaccines one day and I asked for a set of gloves and they were like, no, 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 we don't have those. And they were frustrated that I even asked. So I was like, okay, that's, that's fine. I'm, I guess I don't need those, you know. So um, I, financially you can help, but I think what's going to make the biggest difference is educating, um, educating people. So then I just wanted to share a couple of um, photos from my everyday life there. So this is um, Mike. He uh, does the adventure challenges. He organizes those. These are the motorbikes that everybody has. Basically, those are instead of cabs, they have motorbikes. So I rode that for the um, 10 kilometers to school every day. That was a lot of fun. Um, and then on the right, this is Lucy. Uh, when Mike and Lila had shown up um, while I was there, they came with like five bags of donated clothes, so we threw a fashion show, so that's what that is. <laughs> and this picture on the left, we um, roasted marshmallows and had a bonfire after, um, this was actually my birthday, but we did it, this was the day after the Westgate Mall attack, um, and we all kind of wanted to get together and just talk about what we were grateful for and um, to pray for everyone at Westgate and what had happened. I don't know if everyone's aware of the terrorist attack at Westgate Mall. So it's a, a huge, really nice upscale mall in Nairobi in the city um, where it's kind of an international hub. That's where everybody goes. And um, they were, I think, a group of four or five terrorists that came in and they killed over 150 people, something like that, and two, I think three of them were Americans, um, two of them were from, a couple from Boston. Um, so that happened while I was there. And then this one on the other side, the um, boys had built um, soccer fold and we had a fun day. We did a soccer tournament with the teachers and the staff at Flying Kites and all the kids. I didn't play, I was too, I was too nervous, they're way better. No. <laughs> <laughs> Um, this is Lila, she's the founder, and um, this is Cecilia, and that's also Cecilia, and one of the matrons. They are peeking out of the window of the kitchen, my favorite place. Uh, there. They just keep feeding you and giving you tea. Um, this is their garden in the backyard, and that little hut they built because that's, the, for some reason, the best place for Wi-Fi in the whole whole place in the middle of the yard, so they just built a hut. Um, so that's where I did all my blog writing and catching up back home. And then this is the Land Rover that takes um, like 30 kids to school. Probably not legal here, but uh, or there really, but that's the only way that we could get them all over to school. And then I, I added these just to kind of show that you also have to have fun when you go on these types of trips. Um, this was part of the safari that I went on, and then here I did a, a, tons of hiking and camping. Um, so that's one of the pictures um, from that. Oh yeah, and these ones, um, one day the kids were like, Auntie, Auntie, let's, let's go to the river. So I'm like, great, we're gonna go swimming. And they brought me here, this one on the left, which was just like an old dam from like 50 years ago that the British had left them, but they were using it as a slide. And then, <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, I, I did it though. I was, I was impressed with myself. <laughs> they were running up it. I don't know. Um, and then on the right, they're uh, pretty funny. They kind of create their own toys with everything, anything that they have. They're 
pretty creative. And um, these kids were, uh, you know, one of the other biggest impacts that I had while I was there uh, were these kids when they showed up. Um, one day we were driving home from school and I was sitting next to Daniel and he said, there are five new kids at the house. And I was like, what? What do you mean there are five new kids at the house? Yeah, there are kid new kids. So I showed up, I was super nervous because I didn't know what that meant. And um, these four and the little one on my back, um, they were in the yard. They just looked like they hadn't bathed in weeks probably. The um, second uh, youngest one, this one here, second one in, she had like this huge weld and bruise and um, they just looked terrified. Um, they looked malnourished. They had been that um, Friday, or I think a month prior, their mother had run away. She was pregnant because their father was abusing her. So she ran away. And then that Friday, the father said, if I come home tonight and you're still here, I'm going to kill all of you. So they ended up walking, um, I think, like 10 miles that on Friday night that to the made it to the nearest um, city, sort of, a bigger town. Um, and they kind of wandered the streets there. They were picked up by the police. Um, and then the police didn't know what to do with them, so they just dropped them off at Flying Heights. Um, and this was after, like, two or three days of them being at Flying Kite. They had completely transformed. They were so happy. The ones of us on the motorbike, that was us taking them to their first health checkup. Um, but basically the um, two youngest girls, um, they had like those classic huge bellies um, from worms and from mal malnourishment. And they each had their stomachs were completely covered in scars um, from being abused. The oldest one, she had this like five centimeter by half centimeter scar on the back of her head. The two boys, older boys, were okay. Um, so it was mostly the girls that he was just abusing. So pretty much we couldn't send them back to where they came from. Um, so uh, we got letters from the Flying Heights board. Um, I wrote a letter as a nurse saying my assessment of the situation. And then um, I ended up going to court with them a month later. This was the first week of October. So this was the last week of October. We went to court to fight for custody of the kids. Um, and so, and we also kind of pushed the board back home to accept these kids because they didn't want to take in five new kids, like I said earlier, financially. But we all fell in love with them because they were just so cute. Um, and obviously their situation, you can't say no once they've already been dropped off on your property, you can't turn them away. So um, we ended up winning the case and the father um, was uh, sent or sentenced to three and a half years and like a huge fine. So the kids are now ours temporarily until they find the mother and then we're hopefully gonna try to reunite them with their mom and help support the mom and um, have them um, you know, just kind of support them as a family to keep them all together. Um, and I th after three weeks of them being there, the kids already started speaking English. And they all kind of um, meshed in with the group. 
the first day that they showed up, the kids were really welcoming to them. They all went over to them and introduced themselves. And, um, you know, like the older girls were picking up the baby and carrying her around. It was just like so cute. They all, their instincts all came in. They were so loving. I was really impressed by, you know, not just um, the matrons and the flying kites board and everyone for accepting the kids, but also um, the orphans that were already there. They were just so sweet and loving to, to these kids. So now I, um, um, I sponsor Samuel, who's this one on the far right here. He kind of stole my heart because he was really sick one day and I took care of him. And then after that, he would fall asleep in my lap every night and I just got really attached. <laughs> so now he's mine. <laughs> so I just want to talk a little about volunteerism. You really have to have an adventurous spirit. Um, you have to be kind of ready for everything. You need to be patient and flexible because things are definitely not going to work out the way you plan them to, um, especially with the timing uh, of things like Kenyan time. Um, you ha definitely have to have a sense of humor uh, and being culturally, culturally sensitive. Um, in Kenya, there are 46 tribes. So they have their um, official language, which is Kiswahili, and um, then they also have 46 tribal languages. So everyone, well, the more educated people know English, Kiswahili, and their tribal language. And then the less educated know the tribal language and sometimes some Kiswahili. Um, so you just have to be aware that, like, I don't like when people say, oh, I'm going to Africa or I've been to Africa, because it's every area is so different, even within Kenya. It's, each part is so different. And then um, volunteering, you're there to be a volunteer, but you can also be a tourist and have fun. So like this run, this is my daily run that was, um, just beautiful every time, and then this is another picture from hiking. Um, you really uh, need to be aware of safety while, while you're there. Um, before I went, I registered with the U.S. Embassy so that they knew that I was there and um, I would get updates all the time if um, things were going on. Like that's how we found out about the unrest in Mombasa. And they were during Westgate, they were saying to stay away from Nairobi. And, um, so that's a way to be safe, and you can um, get those updates on your phone. And um, you definitely need to plan ahead. Uh, make sure you have a valid passport. Uh, figure out what you might need to do for your visa. Um, sometimes you have to apply ahead of time, and that can take up to six months to get your visa approved. And then inoculations, depending on where you go, you'll need different shots. Um, and um, I think it's a B is a series of shots over three or six months. And fundraising. Um, I threw two events the summer before to raise um, money for the trip to go there. Because it definitely, most of the cost is the flight. Um, the cost of living there is pretty cheap. But, um, and then you also want to raise money for the organization as well. And in leaving an impression there, you kind of want to arrive with an open heart and mind and create relationships with everyone around you. So as a nurse, we have to tie it all together with ADPI and the nursing diagnosis. <laughs> um, <laughs> so um, after a couple of discussions with my clinical nurse educator, Miriam, we decided I could approach the issue as a quality improvement project. Uh, the students were really engaged and excited about the classes. Uh, I think the greatest barrier with the younger class was the language barrier. 
Um, but I also have been told by the teachers that the students were educating their families, relatives, and friends outside of class. Everyone was talking, like this was a huge hit. <laughs> the whole town was talking about it. Um, and overall, the kids scored really well. So I think the project was successful. Um, Dartmouth um, and my unit leadership supported me as well by granting me a leave of absence in order to carry out the project. So my assessment, the children at the home nearing puberty are, are in puberty or have surpassed it. Teenagers were discovered to be sexually active and using prayer to avoid pregnancy and diseases. The matrons were unsure of how to discuss these issues with the children and there's currently no sexual health or education courses. My diagnosis, knowledge deficient related to sexual health. The plan was to provide sexual education and, life, and a life skills course over a two month time period. So my intervention was Planned Parenthood was contacted for guidance on teaching materials. Courses were researched and chosen based on availability and applicability. Life skills booklet was obtained from the Peace Corps once I arrived in Kenya. And um, the students at the Feinstein Leadership Academy were divided into two age grouped co-ed classes. Um, aged, um, it was actually seven to nine and 10 to 13. The classes were over a 60 to 90 minute time period, about four days per week for six weeks, and education was provided through the use of verbal and written explanation, visuals, class activities, discussions, and note-taking by the students. And for evaluation, the students were tested at the end of the curriculum with a multiple choice exam. In the age seven to nine class, the average was an 83%. In the age 10 to 13 class, the average was a 95. So how can you get involved? You can sponsor, um, with flying kites, you can sponsor a child, volunteer, do an adventure challenge, make a donation. Then there are other organizations like Partners in Health, Mercy Ships, Peace Corps, and Doctor Without Borders. Those are more long-term opportunities at um, flying kites. You can kind of create your own short or, or long-term. And um, I added, so flyingkites.org is their website, and I added idealist.org. That's a really, I don't know if you've heard of that website. It's a really great spot to research um, organizations that you can volunteer for and you can get very specific in your guidelines you can say um, like I speak Spanish I'm a nurse I want to go to South America and I want to talk about diabetes and you can like type that into the search engine and it will bring up all these different organizations or um, places um, wherever you want to go uh, to help you volunteer um, any questions? Boots are really important. <laughs> I was just wondering, um, mm -hmm. since you said that it's difficult for parents to talk to their kids about sex, were the kids open talking to you about sex? Um, yeah, uh, initially they definitely were really nervous, but everyone had that like, it was funny and they all had that like anxious, nervousness. I think um, the question box was the biggest thing for them because nobody really asked, nobody asked questions during class. It was, but then like each kid would put in, I'd say write one question, each kid would put in like five questions. So I was sifting through, you know, like 40 questions. I wouldn't even get through all the questions and um, cause, because they had so many. By the end of the um, curriculum, the older kids were definitely speaking out during class. And they stopped even using the box and they were just raising their hand. And 
they ask the most ridiculous questions. Like some of them are really funny and some of them are, were really serious. Um, but uh, yeah, they, they even asked me about Rihanna and like, does Rihanna use condoms? Cause she's having sex. I'm like, I don't know. I hope so. <laughs> but, but they, and then they would ask, you know, um, like how, how do you know that you're ready? How do you know when you're ready to have sex or, um, you know, where, do you, how much do condoms cost? Or, um, what do you, like I said earlier, I think, what do you do if you feel pressured or things, things like that? So I think because I was a stranger, and also the, the question box that it you know we didn't know who was asking the questions. Um, they were more open, but I'm I'm not sure if they if they how comfortable they were if I hadn't done that. Um, was abstinence discussed at all in your curriculum? It, it was yes. So that was um, you know that was kind of our first step was with decision making. You know, why would you abstain from from sex? And we use the decision-making process to do that. And we talked about the um, positive and negative consequences of that. And really, the kids led that discussion. They discussion. They said, you know, well, good questions. It would feel or good consequences. It would feel sweet. Bad consequences. Um, you won't do well in school um, because you'll be distracted. You may get hurt. You can get diseases. You could be pregnant. So. That's how we approached abstinence was talking about consequences of having sex and then consequences of abstaining from, from sex. Um, and we talked about good and bad consequences of abstaining. So they had a good understanding of that as well. You're obviously a very good teacher. So I'm going to ask a little bit of a difficult question. Can you think of one or two ways that that experience has enhanced your ability to be a great mother to you? Um, I think communication and also not panicking in the situation. <laughs> <laughs> kind of holding, holding things together. Um, so being asked very difficult questions during class. Um, that I can definitely relate to having difficult discussions with patients and family members here. And then in emergency situations here, you kind of, I figured out that way to stay, keep easy and um, you know take a deep breath and then approach the situation with a, with a clear mind. I think those are probably the biggest things that I learned there that I can apply here. Um, so you talked about the matrons in, mm -hmm. in the school, uh, the home. Do they have a, um, a lot of male influence as well? It sounds like you know the matrons provide a lot of female influence. But... Mm -hmm. So um, the the matrons, there were four matrons as I said, and they um, kind of acted as the mothers, and they were disciplinary, and they were um, also fun, and they kept the structure and. Um, they also had uh, a male chef who he was, I loved him, his name was Steve, and he always had something really insightful and wise to say. Um, just listening to him talk, I would just be like, oh my gosh, how are you so wise? <laughs> and um, he would have discussions like that with the kids all the time. And They also had um, 
security guards 24-7. Um, they had four security guards on, on site. Um, and those were men. And uh, so, and everyone really had a really good relationship with each other and, and with the kids. So um, that's how they kind of balance their male and female role models. Chris? I'm impressed by the contrast between the lack of equipment and supplies there mm -hmm. and your work here, where we have an overwhelming amount and a lot of waste. Mm -hmm. how, do you, how, did you, how do you handle that? Um, well, there, I just had to work with what I work with what I had, and you just have to, that's one of the things about you have to be flexible about, so not get worked up that, okay, I'm not going to be able to wash my hands in between. So then I, I started bringing Purell with me in my bag, because whenever I fly, I always have Purell. So I started bringing that with me everywhere I went. Because um, even when you would go use public restrooms, it's a hole in the ground with a wall around it. So. Um, I carried Purell and then also just kind of keeping an open mind to what they're doing um, and then educating on you know what we do here but it the hard part was financially they like they don't have the re they don't have running water there they don't have the resource to bring that stuff in so you just have to kind of accept it as it is and then of course here I was like culture shock when I came back more so than when I was there. It was just like so much stuff. And I, I purged at my house. I threw out so, so much stuff in my own environment. That just things that you don't use or need. And so, yeah, I don't know if I answered that that well. But, um, yeah, just, just being really careful with everything that you're doing and um, carrying a lot of Purell. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much, Gary. Thank you.